and amen. As I said, continuing our ode to joy this morning in Philippians, in the first chapter of this letter, which we've covered the last two Sundays, Paul shared his deep love with the Philippians. He encourages them and he urges them to choose joy in the midst of their opposition. He thanks them for their partnership and lets them know that he regularly thinks of them and prays for them. He reminds them that God is still working in them and will continue that work and complete that work all the way up until the day of Christ Jesus' return. Paul teaches the Philippians and us that while we cannot control our circumstances, we can reframe them. He also shows us the benefit of living for him and not for ourselves. Finally, he defines what a citizen of heaven is and how they should live. Paul loved the Philippians church, but he didn't love them because they were a perfect church. There's no such thing, amen? Now, they may have had fewer problems than other churches, but they still needed Paul's coaching and mentoring on some doctrinal issues and also some relational matters. We'll get into more of the theological next Sunday, or in a couple Sundays, chapter 3, but this part of Paul's letter, chapter 2, addresses interpersonal relationships and especially communication between people and believers particularly. In chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul highlights the humility of Christ and how we as followers should mirror that, reflect that. God calls us to radically change our mindset to be humility-minded, like-minded, and Christ-minded. And as we follow Jesus, we learn to value others above ourselves and to truly live the way that we were created to live so that a watching world will take notice and see Jesus in us. Paul also has unity and teamwork in mind, we'll see this morning. Teamwork is an essential part of any human organization, whether it's a sports team, a business, a church, a Girl Scout cookie troop, it won't function well if every person is pursuing their own selfish goals. All members must be working together in unity toward a shared goal, a shared goal. We'll find that the best foundation for unity is humility. Think about that. Humility is the best foundation for unity. I should have had that added to the notes. That's my bad. So I'll say it again. Humility is the best foundation for unity. Do you want to experience more unity in your home, at your job, in whatever circle you have? Raise your hand if that's you. Yeah. It starts with humility. And while we're quick to pray that God would show humility in the lives of others, those that we have to interact with, it starts with us. Jesus Christ is, of course, the best example of humility. And while we first read Philippians as a letter from Paul to the church at Philippi, we must also read it for ourselves. Because if we do, we will be encouraged by the humility of Christ and our church will walk in unity. We will learn to live in the joy of unity. So let's be careful because humility is a tricky thing. The moment you point out that it's active in your life, you've lost it. I had a friend that used to joke, he would say, I pride myself on my humility. There's no such possibility. 
We're in Philippians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. It's also in our app. It'll be up here on the screen as well. Philippians chapter 2. We'll be covering verses 1 through 15 this morning. Paul continues his letter to the Philippians with this. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Amen? Pray with me once more, please. Good morning, Lord. Once again, we thank you that you are here with us. We thank you for the gift of your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Light our way this morning. Lord, show us our next steps to take. Help us to choose humility so that we can live in the joy of unity. Unpack your word for us this morning. Let it be easy to teach. Let it be easy to listen, pay attention, and receive from your holy word. Let it take deep root in our lives and flourish to accomplish what you want. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Verse 1. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul asks both himself and Timothy, maybe the guards there at, uh, in Rome, and also the church at Philippi, some questions. Now, the implied answer to every one of these four questions is a resounding yes. Those who have a real experience with Christ should live together in harmony and love. Even in the midst of opposition, Paul encourages them to be united and to live humble like Christ. In asking these questions, Paul is also sharing the basis or the foundation of our unity in Christ. The foundation of our unity in Christ. We all belong to the same spiritual family. We are all loved by Christ. We all have the Holy Spirit 
which unifies, we should all be demonstrating love and compassion. These are the four things that are laid down as foundational from these four rhetorical questions Paul asks. These are things that believers have in common, and we should be reminded of them. We should remind ourselves of these things. We're on the same team. In verse 2, Paul assumes that their answer to these questions would be a yes. And so he starts verse 2 with the word then. Or in other words, since I know you said yes to all of these questions, and I know you want to make me happy, here is what you should do. You should agree wholeheartedly with one another, you should love one another, and you should work together. When you agree wholeheartedly with someone, you are, you are with complete sincerity and commitment to what is being agreed upon. This is not just nodding. This is not just going along with something. This is actually feeling strong about that something yourself, and so much so that you want to try and make it a reality. Maybe you've experienced this before. When you discover that you have something in common with someone else, when you discover that you wholeheartedly agree with someone about something, it's such a pleasant surprise. You feel an instant connection to that person. There's an instant fondness for that person. It hardly matters what you're agreeing upon. It could be as simple as having the same favorite football team or favorite author or favorite tea. It could be as significant as a core doctrinal theological value that you have. Raise your hand if you've experienced that before. You found that you were on the, entirely on the same page with somebody. That's a neat experience. And that leads to a progression that we see in this verse. Agree wholeheartedly. When you agree wholeheartedly with your brother or sister in Christ, love for that brother or sister grows. And theirs for you grows as well. And then that makes it easier to work together with them. Work together how? Paul says, work together with one mind and one purpose. This is another reference to koinonia, that side-by-side -side laboring and fellowship that we've talked about. This is being on the same page with someone. This is being in agreement and understanding with clarity, with your questions answered. Everyone's rowing in the same direction at the same time. See, humility-minded believers become like-minded believers but it starts with humility. And Paul knows in verse three that humility and unity does not come easily, it does not come naturally, so he lists some different things that can interfere with unity. Selfishness is one of them. Pride is one of them. Those are the exact opposite of genuine care for others. And selfishness is what tempts us to try and impress others, that verse three points out. Because we want to be seen, we want to be heard, we want to be celebrated, we want to look better than we really are. In other words, that's hypocritical. Pride and insecurity and self-preoccupation are other things that make humility and unity difficult to achieve. And it's not just arrogant people that need humility. Arrogant people do need humility, but they're not alone. Perhaps you're here this morning or watching online and you battle with insecurity. I battle with insecurity from time to time. I've let comparison steal my joy. And you may assume that your insecurity makes you humble. Insecurity does not make you humble. It makes you just as prideful because 
your, your, your thoughts and your feelings about yourself become greater than God's thoughts and God's feelings and God's words about you. So whether you're thinking too highly of yourself or too lowly of yourself, you're still just thinking about yourself. That's pride, church. Humility is the opposite of pride and selfishness. Humility does not complain or grumble about doing tasks or chores or activities or serving others. Rather, it does them joyfully. It's thinking about others more than yourself. True humility doesn't think less of yourself. True humility simply thinks of yourself less. You've got less time for the selfie, less time for your personal to-do list. Why? Because you're busy serving others. You're busy valuing others. It's not that you become a doormat. It's not that you become used and abused and and your life doesn't matter and what you have to get done doesn't matter. It's not that at all. It's simply that you learn to value others before yourself. Not in place of yourself, but before yourself. You live by joy. And this morning, joy is an acronym. Jesus, others, then you. You want to live in the place of joy? Put Jesus first. Others second, and then yourself. Paul started this very letter to the Philippians by identifying himself as a slave, not an apostle. He was doing the very thing that he is urging the Philippians to do. Humble themselves, because it would lead to unity. In verse 4, we see Paul sort of restates verse 3. So it must be important if he doubles down in back-to-back verses. Now, he does make a point that there is nothing wrong with looking out for our own interests, okay? Don't don't misunderstand this verse. There's nothing wrong with looking out for your own interests, having your own to-do list, but that should not and cannot be your only focus. We must keep our eyes and our hearts open to the needs of others and the interests of others. We must take an interest in the interest of others, So what does this look like practically? Husbands, if your wife likes the bed made in the morning, but you could care less, if she doesn't have time to get to it, make the bed. Just choose humility and serve joyfully. Wives, if your husband likes a certain amount of gas left in the car, but you're not worried at all about riding the E-line as long as you can, choose humility. And serve joyfully. Put some gas in the car. At least like a quarter of a tank. Teenagers, if your parents expect you to keep your room clean and pick up after yourselves, just do it. Choose humility and serve joyfully. Parents, perhaps you have younger children and they're into superheroes or princesses, but you don't care for that. You don't have time for that. Take an interest in their favorite superhero. Take an interest in their favorite princess. Get on the floor, put on a tiara, and play with your kids. We could go on and on with all sorts of different examples in the workplace and elsewhere. But listen, Christian, follower of Christ, don't look out only for your interests. Take an interest in others too. 
and we take an interest in others by taking interest in what they're interested in. Say that five times fast. Why would Paul put this in the letter? It seems like such a shift from where he was going in chapter one, right? There, there must be some clues, some indicators that there was some kind of disunity, some kind of disagreement or, or disgruntlement amongst the believers in Philippi. Perhaps Epaphroditus, you know, shared that the church members weren't getting along real well. They had competing agendas. I mean, why else would Paul shift gears from their partnership in ministry and their shared struggles to now the importance of humility and unity? Can you even believe that the Christians in Philippi were in disagreement, only looking out for themselves? How dare they call themselves Christians? All right, this is so far-fetched from our modern church reality, isn't it? Perhaps you're picking up the sarcasm. I'm laying it out there thick. But in Paul's view, you can't have joy ministering for Christ if you are at odds with those you are ministering with. You can't have joy ministering for Christ if you are at odds with the people you are ministering to. Just as you can find joy in your relationship with Christ, you too can find joy in your relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice the parallelism from what we've already covered in this study to this text this morning. Paul had just finished saying that to find joy in the midst of adversity, you have to forget about yourself and focus on Christ. You remember that? It's not about me. It's all about Christ. Well, now he's saying if you want to find joy in the midst of adversity and especially in ministry, you have to forget about yourself and focus on the people you are ministering with and ministering to. So whether it's about God or whether it's about his people, it's still not about us. It's still not about you. And this point that Paul is trying to make can all be summed up in one word, humility. Pride and selfishness distorts our view of ourselves and others, but humility is a mindset that keeps our relationship with God and with others in its proper perspective. In verse 5, it gets real. Paul is dropping the mic with verse 5. The brakes bring this vehicle to a screeching halt. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Just stop and think about those 10 words. Who was too busy counting to make sure there were 10 words? I know there's some of you. <laughs> no example of humility tops that of Jesus Christ. Agreed? And the instruction here from Paul to the church at Philippi and to us is not do your best. It's not give it the old college try. Paul said you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Man, this is one part of the letter that we're tempted to say that must have just been for the Philippians, right? Can we look a little closer at the context? Is that really bringing us into it? Well, remember, Paul knew, as was custom, that this letter would circulate to many, many churches. So he was not just addressing the church at Philippi. God made sure it circulated much, much further than that, all the way to us here this morning. So 
We must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. When you hear that word attitude or, or you think about someone having an attitude that's typically not a compliment, right? When you say, that person has such an attitude, it's usually not like, they've got the best attitude I've ever seen. No, it's usually like, stay away from that person. They've got an attitude. What is attitude? If we were to define attitude, is a settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something, typically one that is reflected in a person's behavior. I forgot if I had that up there or not. A settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something, typically one that is reflected in a person's behavior. It's important to note that the attitude of Jesus, the mindset of Jesus, was as the definition stated, settled. Something that is settled is fixed, established, not changing. In Hebrews 13, verse 8, we see Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In James 1, 17b, he never changes or casts a shifting shadow. The attitudes, thoughts, feelings, and actions of Jesus have always been consistent. He didn't get it right sometimes and then miss it at other times. The attitude that Jesus had was and always will be the same. Next, Paul begins to explain what type of attitude Jesus had. And you'll notice a different format in the text. Verses 6 through 11 appear more poetic or lyrical, like something we might find in the book of Psalms. This portion of scripture has been called the Christ hymn. Many scholars believe that it's something the earliest Christians would have sung. So verse 6, though he was God, another version says, being in nature God. Being there is in the present tense. Always was, always is, always will be. Another version says, in the form of God. There's two Greek words for form, one addressing the inner being of somebody, one the external form of somebody. You don't look like you looked 10 years ago, right? We won't look this way. I won't look this good 10 years from now. Just kidding. We're talking about humility. But the Greek word is the first one, talking about the, the inner form of something that was not changed. Though he was God, he did not hold on to that position or that status. Christ is God's equal. Christ was with God from the beginning. And although he was God, Christ came voluntarily to earth in human form in obedience to God's plan for the salvation of humanity. Jesus didn't walk around with a name tag letting people know who he was. Jesus veiled his deity without voiding it. There was never a moment in the life of Jesus when he suddenly became God. He was God before he entered the world as a little baby. And he remained God after becoming a man. And when the scripture says that he made himself nothing, it doesn't mean he ceased being God. He simply veiled or covered up his deity. He kept it on the down low, but he did not delete it. He always was and always will be God. So let's play pretend this morning. Imagine if you were asked for the sake of science to undergo an experiment that would transform you into a dung beetle. Any takers? Raise your hand. 
No. No, of course not. The mere thought of it's ridiculous and insulting. You're a human being, the most advanced creature living on earth. You were fearfully and wonderfully made by the hands of God. Nothing could motivate you to do something so drastic and demeaning. Well, morphing into a dung beetle does not even begin to approach the extent of the humiliation that Christ endured in coming to earth as a human and dying on a cross. I don't think we can comprehend it. Not fully, anyway. But to the extent that we can understand Christ's attitude and Christ's humility, we are to to copy it, to match it. Let ours be the same as his. In verse 7, we see that Christ literally emptied himself. He denied himself. By coming to earth as human, Christ put aside, he stifled, he did not tap into what he had access to, and that was many of his godly attributes. He was all God and all man at the same time. 100% God, 100% man, not 50-50. He is divinity and humanity. His divine nature is seen in his sinlessness. He lived a perfect life. His humanity was seen with physical characteristics such as hunger and thirst and pain. And he never used his divine power to make his human life any easier. He never performed a miracle for his benefit. He chose not to use his omnipotence and omniscience while here on earth. Jesus experienced your experiences. God understands what you're going through. There's no one better to turn to for that reason. So Christ did not merely put on a human mask or a costume, he became man, God in flesh and blood, Jesus with skin on. And when he, when he let it go, when he denied himself, I picture Jesus unclenching his fists, releasing his grasp in submission to the Father. What are you grasping onto that you need to let go of today? What is hindering your humility? Let go of it today. Jesus relinquished control to the Father, living in the form that his Father desired. Jesus took the humble position of a slave. Jesus changed his position. Jesus changed his posture. How might you need to change your posture? Because lots of believers, we want to be servants, right? We want to be like Jesus, but no one wants to be treated like a servant. Paul, writing about this position that Jesus took, makes his introduction in chapter 1, verse 1, make even more sense. I'm a slave to Jesus. In verse 8, again, we see Christ humbled himself in obedience to God. And Jesus was obedient, not just to the point of discomfort, but all the way to the point of death. We can all handle a certain amount of tension and discomfort, but we usually have a breaking point. There's usually a a line where we wave the white flag, where we throw in the towel, not for Jesus. For Jesus, obedience outweighed the outcome. What if we lived in such a way that our obedience to the Father outweighed the outcome? He died a physical death, we see in verse 8, a criminal's death by crucifixion. 
In the Roman Empire, there was nothing more cruel or gruesome or humiliating than the punishment of crucifixion. And when Jesus surrendered his life on the cross, Jesus, God accepted the blood of this man, Jesus, as the penalty for our sins. Christ died to fulfill the will of God and so that we wouldn't have to face eternal death. Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, the sacrificial offering made on our behalf gives us the opportunity to be forgiven and reconciled to God. In verses 9 through 11, we get a sneak peek at how everything's going to end. This is where the universe and God's plan intersect and it comes to its culmination. In verse 9, we see as a result of Christ's humility, obedience, and sacrifice, God put him back where he rightfully belongs. God restored Christ to his rightful place in heaven. This was so much more than just a promotion. This was total restitution for what Jesus had put aside in obedience to the Father. We already know that Jesus is the supreme authority and power. Someday in the future, the entire universe will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. In verses 10 and 11, we see every knee and every tongue mentioned in those verses. That means the entire creation of God is being addressed here. Everyone is God's creation. Not everyone is God's child. That's their decision. But they can't refute that they are his creation. The entire creation, including spiritual powers, demons, and angels, and humans on earth, and even those that have died, will acknowledge the authority of Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, when we read that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, this is not implying universal salvation. Everyone will not be saved. I wish that was the case, but it's not. Why? Because not everyone will announce Jesus as their personal Lord freely out of love and devotion. But they will admit one day that he is Lord of all. They will recognize the worship that is only meant for him. Jesus' Lordship will be acknowledged by all. Regardless of what anyone thinks about it now, in the end, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What he has veiled will be revealed and clearly visible to all, for all to see. Excuse me. What I want you to take away from verses 9 through 11 is this. Jesus did the dying. The Father did the rising. It has to be the same for us. It's up to us to die to ourselves. It's the only way we can walk in humility and live in the joy of unity. It's up to us to die to ourselves. It's up to God to raise us up. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes, this is a familiar saying, a trustworthy saying, if we die with him, we will also live with him. The way up is down, church. Choose obedience, humility, and serving with joy, and God will reward it. I believe that the right posture will lead to promotion. In verse 12, or just above verse 12, we see a new subtitle, Shine Brightly for Christ. When we have the same humble attitude of Christ, we are equipped to shine brightly for him. 
Paul begins to encourage the believers to remain firm in their faith and to live faithful, obedient, and pure lives modeled after Jesus. Paul had just presented Christ as the model for humility. Now, he challenges his dear friends to make every effort to achieve unity in the church. Remember, humility is the best foundation for unity, and Jesus Christ gave us the best example of humility. In verse 12, Paul starts by pointing out that the Philippians had always been faithful. They had listened well. They had been obedient when he was around. Well, he's not around now. He's in jail. This is like a parent leaving their kid home alone for the first time. The kid knows what to do. They know what not to do. But mom and dad's not around. Mom and dad's not going to be checking in on them. So how is it really going to go down? It's to be determined. Paul's hoping that they will be motivated by more than just his approval or disapproval. He points them in the direction of doing it for God and for his glory. Paul gives the Philippians and you a checklist for evidence that Christ is in control of your life. And this list is not exhaustive, but he mentions some of the characteristics that should be shining in our lives or shining through our lives. Now, hear me. Paul is not saying that they have to work to obtain salvation. That already happened when they accepted Christ as their Savior. There's no to-do list that's required for salvation. Salvation's a free gift, amen? We don't work for our salvation, we work out our salvation. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, God saved you by his special favor when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. You don't have to work for salvation. The work comes after salvation to show the fruit of your salvation. Paul's talking about the effort that is necessary to become more Christ-like. Christians should be making an effort to grow spiritually. Paul's referring to the sanctification process and the spiritual development that he spoke of in chapter 1, verse 6. And this growth comes from reading the Bible, where we learn from him, from prayer, talking to the Lord, where we lean on him. It comes from worship services and serving and community, but mostly it comes from obedience, where we live for him in reverence and in holy fear of the Lord. Not fear of punishment, but fear of allowing sin to interrupt our intimacy with the Father. In verse 13, we see another reference to the work that God has begun and is continuing and will complete until the day of Christ Jesus. I'm so thankful for the work that, that Christ is doing in me. And I'm so thankful for the reminders that he gives me. And part of the work that God is doing in us is giving us the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Those two words jumped off the page at me, desire and power, similarly to how expect and hope did when we covered chapter 1, verse 20. Desire is a strong feeling of wanting to have something or wishing for something to happen. Power is the ability to do something or act in a particular way. The capacity or ability to correct or influence the behavior of others or the course of events. When I was a kid, taking out the trash was one of my chores. 
come to think of it, it's still one of my chores. There were times that the trash needed to be taken out, but it didn't get taken out as quickly as expected. I had the power to take the trash out. I had no desire to take the trash out. A little over two years ago, I started going to the gym regularly and lifting weights for the first time since I was in high school. And when I first got in the gym, it was super difficult for me to push 135 pounds. Some of you know that's the bar and just one 45-pound plate on each side. I was really, don't laugh at me. (laughs) You could do it. But now, after having gone through body by Tomlinson training, Tomlinson, that's my warm-up weight. I can nail a lot of reps on that 135 just to loosen the muscles up. So, I thought I'd try 225. I thought I'd try and hit a new max. This was some time ago. Um, I was confident. I had seen progress, and so we put 225 on there. That's two 45-pound plates on each side. And I'll never forget the first time that I tried to do that. I laid down on the bench. Pastor Chris slapped me in the face to, like, try and fire me up. (laughs) Made me more mad at him than, like, this weight that I'm trying to push. I gave him the head nod that I was ready to go, and that bar came down pretty fast. (laughs) And it just kind of hung out there for a while. And if I'm honest, he did a lot more of pulling it back up than I did pushing it back up. I had the desire to push that weight. I did not yet have the power to push that weight. And those are two silly examples of desire and power. But the point is, we need both of them, don't you? Desire without power is frustrating power without desire is just laziness we need them both and God is working in us to have both of these things so that we can accomplish what he pleases his will what have you desired to do for God but have felt powerless to do ask him for his power to do that which would please him what has God given you the power to do but you've lacked the desire to do. Ask him to make your desires line up with his. Because I believe strongly that if you will offer God your desire to accomplish his will, he will give you the power to do so. And if God has already empowered you in a particular way, and you've been lazy to apply that power, enough's enough. Church, in love, get to work. I'm reminded of the parable of the talent, where the wicked and lazy servant had what he was given taken away from him because he didn't do anything with it. In Matthew 25, 29, Jesus said, to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Activate and align the desire and power that God has given you to fulfill his purpose in your life. In verse 14, we see a pretty cut and dry verse. Paul tells the Philippians, don't complain and don't argue. Why? Because that's what people of the world do. That's not what Christians should be like. 
We're not supposed to be just like the rest of the world, are we? The life of a Christian should reflect love and joy and peace and all the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. And when we get this right, we're protected from the world's criticism. When we partake of the arguing and complaining with them, they have a wide open door. They've got permission to say whatever they wish about us. But when we get it right, we're protected from criticism, uh, the very beginning of verse 15 says. These verses are also a reference back to where we started this morning. Paul kind of bookends this same theme at the, at the beginning and end of verses 1 through 15. He's addressing their disunity. Complaining and arguing come from self-centeredness, which is something he mentioned in verse 3. So Paul wants the church of Philippi, being citizens of heaven, to conduct themselves in the particular way they should be conducting themselves so that they're a positive influence to unbelievers. Now, I don't always get this right. Maybe you do. This don't argue and don't complain. More often than not, I probably miss the mark on this. But very recently, I've asked the Lord to give me opportunity, and I've been very intentional to try and apply these verses. I want to practice what I'm preaching, y'all. So I was having some major car problems, and I took it to a shop. And they did a few things that they thought would fix it. I paid the bill. End of story, right? Wrong. <laughs> same exact issues, like same exact issues after spending just shy of a grand. So I took it back to the shop, and I was kind. I was gracious. I was patient. They made some adjustments. They tried some minor things, and I took the car home. Still no fix. Exact same issue. I did not complain, and I did not argue. It actually went from bad to worse. It's typically the car I drive. This particular Saturday, Ashley and Callie were on their way to a soccer game when the fuel line came undone, and they stopped abruptly. Now, you know that could have been a lot worse, and that doesn't just happen, right? Something, something went wrong there. So I called the shop, got it towed back there. This is now the third time in less than three weeks that my car is in the shop. I'm starting to run out of patience at this point, but the Holy Spirit continued to help me. There's a saying, you catch more bees with honey than vinegar. That's the approach that I had. I did not complain. And I did not argue. God is my witness. Holy Spirit really helped me practice patience and self-control. And as a result, they had nothing to criticize me for. One of the managers even said, and I quote, Man, you've been so patient, it's unbelievable. I then took that opportunity to invite him to church. I shared the truth with him. I explained why I try to carry myself the way that I did. I'm not just a nice guy. Like, I've got the Holy Spirit inside of me that's helping me through this, man. And he can help you too. It was a cool moment. And guess what? There was zero charge for that second trip to the shop and the third trip to the shop and the towing of the vehicle and all the extra parts and labor that went into it. Zero charge for all of that. And I got a significant discount, significant on some new tires that were way past due. 
And they finally did get to the bottom of this unsolved mystery, and my car has been working properly now for over a week, praise God. Woo! But listen, I'm convinced that that story would have ended differently if I had conducted myself differently. I'm not patting myself on the back here. Didn't I admit that I usually miss it in this area? I'm thankful the Lord gave me an opportunity to practice what I'm preaching. And I'm even more thankful that the Holy Spirit helped me get it right that time. Our conduct as followers of Christ should be pure and wholesome. We should live clean, verse 15 says. And this applies not only to our behavior, but to our thoughts and our motives. Maybe you remember from week one, right thoughts and right motives lead to right behavior. Our lives should be drawing people to God. Think about a lighthouse or or any kind of light for that matter. Verse 15 says we're to shine like bright lights. Light's a special thing to God. God's first spoken words in scripture were let there be light. And it was the first thing ever created in the universe. And did you know that when a star dies, did you know a star could die? When a star dies, its light can still travel on for years and it continues to shine. It's also proven that on a clear night, you can see the flicker of a flame up to 30 miles away. So as we talk about being a light or shining like bright lights for Jesus, we have to define what light is. God's light is his truth and his grace. It's his truth, which is his word. It's his grace, which is undeserved mercy. Light is God's grace and truth, and it shines in us through faith and burns brighter as he works and lives in us. Darkness is everything else, everything that is opposite of faith in God's truth and his ways. Paul says we're to shine like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. So so who does the shining? Is Is it me or is it Christ? Well, remember what Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What may appear as our work is actually God's work in and through us. It's all about him. That is the place where you will live in the joy of unity. It's God shining his grace and truth through us, amen? He's the one working through our actions and our witness to show his light to this sinful and broken world. So as you live your life this week and as you may do some kind of simple task, know that God is shining his light through you in that task, in that conversation. That's what it means to shine like bright lights. This world is dark and in need of light. The Holy Spirit in and through our lives can illuminate the dark. And remember, his light shines even brighter through us the darker that it gets. Let's live as children of God, letting his light shine through us. Hide it under a bushel? No, we're gonna let it shine, amen? Stand up to your feet. Let's lift our voices in song to the powerful name of Jesus.